Welcome to Chit Chat Money. Today is Tuesday, June 8th. Today we do not have an interview, but we're doing a bit of a fun segment, kind of going through our own personal valuation processes. Uh, and then we got our typical show notes. But before we get to that, we have a word from our sponsor, our friends, our partners, Seven Investing. You want to go mm-hmm. through it? Yeah, I can. So if you use our code CCM at checkout, you can get $10 off your first month. Their rates are actually going up in July. So now is the time to strike. Get in while you can. Get in while you can. Either way, it's a great service. And they just dropped new recs the other day. If you're a long-term investor, if you're growth style, if you're more conservative valuation style, they have all different types of picks for you, plus good video analysis to go along with it and written analysis tons of commentary and they're always talking with their uh, um, subscribers so all in all great service ten dollars off use code CCM all right Ryan do you want do you have anything else here no nope. without further ado let's get to the show welcome to chit chat money on this show hosts Ryan Henderson and Brett Schaefer interview industry experts and riff on the world of investing as a quick reminder chit chat money is a CCM media group podcast Ryan and Brett are also general partners at Arch Capital, and Arch Capital may have positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Anything discussed on Chit Chat Money by Ryan or Brett or any other podcast guests is not formal advice or recommendation. Now, please enjoy this episode. All right, welcome in. We are diving into our valuation processes. Uh, I'm going to be going first, kind of what I look at. Neither one of us use DCFs. Spoiler alert! So if that turns off, if that turns you off to the show, hey, we don't, we stop. don't, yeah, we don't use the explicit DCFs. We use, uh, we're still discounting mental cash models. Flows. Yeah, we're still discounting cash flows. But whoever said this when we were doing that spaces Q and A with Max, uh, thank you for asking about that. Kind of inspired this because whoever did they asked about how we go about valuation. So mm-hmm. here we go. We're gonna go. We're gonna go through it. Ryan, you want to start? Yeah. So. Uh, the valuation modeling is based off your assumptions, right? And so I'm going to try to talk about how I mold my assumptions first, and then I'll talk about sort of the mental math that I go through. And the two things that I'm mostly paying attention to uh, in order to make my assumptions are the cost structure of the business and the durability slash sustainability of the growth in the business. And so when I talk about sustainability, there's there's a bit of a dis- I kind of distinguish durability versus sustain- sustainability as sustainability is the environment around the business and then durability is what that business has going for it that makes it hard to uh, kind of okay. – it, it allows them to dictate their own growth. Um, and so I guess the best thing – like an example would be uh, – and in you might have a business that has competitive advantages that could be durable. But then if the industry is in terminal decline, it might not be sustainable. That's kind of the way I think about it. That's the definitions you're using. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, and so uh, there is – we talked about this with Louise on the show before. But it's pretty easy to forecast out – with some businesses, it's easy to forecast out the next year or the next two years. But once you get to five to ten years out, it becomes – you're looking at what does that business have? What distinct trait does it have over its competitors where it allows them uh, to have pricing power to keep their customers there? Or what I think Todd Wenning and Intrent or Ensemble Capital calls idiosyncratic businesses. So those are kind of the things we look for that help me mold my growth assumptions. Do you, do you look at the industry too? Or are you kind of focusing yeah. on is there – I think kind of the way, and maybe I'm still in my own way I look at it, is do you look at kind of tailwind versus headwind? That's kind of, I mean, it simplifies it, but like, is this industry in a tailwind or is it going to face some headwinds from demand from customers? Yeah, that's the sustainability part. Ideally, you have a business where there is something very distinct about it that you can only get from them and not the competitors, and they're in an industry where there's a lot of natural growth, where they don't have to spend to get that growth, even though they might voluntarily spend that money on sales and marketing or investing through the income statement. Right. Uh, it kind of comes naturally. I, the one that comes to mind is gaming, stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, and then the second part of that or the pillar is operating leverage for me or cost structure. And so I think, especially when you're starting out, it's really easy to say, okay, gross margins are at 90%, then 
their operating margins are negative 50%, but eventually operating margins will just close in on gross margins or, or sort of that margin, mar, margin or conversion. Or they'll be 50% or right. something like that. But uh, that it was, I mean, that's probably what I did early on as well. But now it's kind of going into the 10K, looking at each line item, looking at each cost or expense and saying which of these are variable, which of them are fixed, which one, uh, if this company starts to sell more, it starts to reach scale, are they going to have to carry those expenses with it? Or is it kind of just one-time development costs, you know, software as a service versus uh, the example I think of is the manufacturing and distribution costs that came with selling hard copy video games versus now the operating leverage they've seen where they build the software and deploy it digitally. Right, uh, right. I think they yeah I have a num I think the number on that is six percent savings uh, or six percent you know better profits if you're selling digitally versus you know in store which makes a lot of sense yeah and so I just kind of look through each one of those and then from there I take try to take a conservative uh, guess based on what costs I think will scale with the business which ones won't what free cash flow margins will look like three to five years out, or even for more mature businesses, what does it look like right now? Um, and then can that improve? Because gross margins, I don't I don't really care that much about them, to be honest, because some, some costs of revenue uh, don't scale as much with the business. And then gross margins can also change depending on the elements of the business that are doing better. So the yeah. one to think of is like Roku. Uh, mm-hmm. Everyone was like, well, these gross margins are poor. Um, and then obviously the platform came along as sort of this uh, Trojan horse. Uh, no one's looking at it. There's a part of the business that's growing that's a that has much different, e- more uh, just different economics um, that can kind of change that. And w- what you're saying is not that gross margins don't matter. It's that it's really not something to debate. They're kind of there. And then what yeah. really matters, what's going to change over time are a lot of the other inputs on the line items that will get you to free cash flow margins. Yeah. So, I mean, if you have, if you classify hiring a sales assistant or uh, a customer representative as an operating expense or something like that, and you have to add one for every customer, that might as well be a cost of goods sold. So I yeah. think it's worth going into operating expenses and seeing what exactly are they classifying as that. Do you think that specifically that line item will scale with the business or do you think they're putting a lot of the costs up front to get a lot of cash back later? And um, then, uh, to invert that situation, I think a question you can ask is if they took away this expense, they stopped spending on this, would the business totally fall apart? Would revenue growth or earnings growth collapse? Right. And if it doesn't, maybe it is going to scale a lot. Right. And so then, yeah, as I said, I don't really do DCFs. Um, and I have sort of my own reasons. I think you have to do – I think it's worth doing DCFs at least once, twice, going through the exercise multiple times so you know what the math looks like. Um, but for me, I'm I'm an investor that's very susceptible to – like very basic biases. Uh, anchoring is probably the big one, and I anchor a lot to like projections. We all are. Yeah, we all do. And so I think if I put the numbers down on a spreadsheet and kind of pray to it, you know, where I'm, you kind of worship the DCF, then it, it can lead to overlooking flaws in the business. Um, and you kind of anchor to that. And so I, I try not to do it, but the mental math that I kind of go through is – I'll give an example. So if I have a business that trades at a $2 billion market cap, well, in this scenario, assume diluted share count doesn't change. It's yeah, net, net flat, yeah. Uh, and it has, so it's $2 billion market cap. It does $500 million in revenue. Of that, it has $100 million in free cash flow. So it trades at 20 times free cash flow trailing. Yep. If I think conservatively that that business is going to grow revenues at 10% annually for the next five years, and I think... Uh, because of XYZ factors, whether it's, uh, you know, like the video game scenario, uh, they're going from more uh, manufacturing of discs to digital. I think they're going to boost their free cash flow margin from 20% to 30% over those five years. So they'll have better, yeah, their free cash flow is going to go faster than their revenue. Yes, uh, or operating leverage. Basically, is another way of saying that. Then I can kind of do the mental math of I, I basically just throw a terminal 
multiple on there that's hopefully conservative. Uh, so in that scenario, they'd have around 800 million in revenue at the end of the five years, uh, 250 million in free cash flow, roughly. Now, if I take, I now let's I, I assume that it's going to trade at 15 times free cash flow. So I assume a little bit of multiple compression. Uh, then you can go ahead and basically do the math. You can put it into a compounded annual growth rate calculator online if you want. But after a while, you kind of get uh, you get an idea of how to do it in your head. And so in that case, you get about 87% upside. I, I went in and put it on a calculator, which is around 13.5% a year. That's the mental math I go through. But it all comes down to the assumptions. And just trying to use conservative assumptions wherever you can is the best thing you can do. And then hopefully... You get a scenario where you're using conservative assumptions and it still kind of slaps you in the face. And yeah, that's yeah. that's in my mind a home run. Uh, obviously, there's risk in all those assumptions. Yeah, true. When, it, when you're ever making a growth assumption, I mean, the stuff is all fake. Um, so you have to be, yeah, I think. Theoretical. Theoretic. It's theoretical. It's not fake. It's more of like, all right, you're making predictions. They are not guaranteed to come true. Uh, do you have anything else or you want me to go through? No, that's the basics of it for me. Okay, yeah. I'll go through mine. Um, it's very similar. Obviously, you know, we have we have similar styles. And uh, I'll give two caveats here. The valuation process does change over time. We're always trying to learn here. And I'm not going to cover everything. And there's always unique situations. So it's not like you just plug and play one formula into every investment. But there are five questions I usually try to answer uh, when underwriting a potential investment. First one, what is the free cash flow yield? Second one, what can free cash flow per share grow at over the next three to five years? That time range could change depending on what type of investment it is. How likely is it that my prediction of free cash flow per share growth is correct? What downside is there? And what free cash flow yield does this asset or company deserve to trade at if the thesis is correct, similar to what Ryan does but a little bit different. I'm going to leave out return on invested capital from this conversation, but that can be an entirely different topic for a whole nother show. We could spend 20, 30 minutes on that alone or longer, but using free cash flow highlights why CapEx is important. Um, as an example, I don't like everyone's favorite company, Tesla, because of the high CapEx needed that's going to it's just not going to, you know, the cash that's going to be returned to shareholders might not be as high as some people think. And then conversely, what draws me to a video game company like Activision Blizzard is the low need for capital expenditures outside of just the employees. So that matters a ton going into it. But that's just one of the inputs. So I'm going to try to answer at least a few of these questions with two different stocks as an example that are on the different part of the growth and value spectrum, Spotify and Sprouts Farmers Market. Uh, as a disclosure, we both own these currently. Mm. So, you know, take it with a grain of salt. I'm obviously going to be biased to the upside here. None of this is a recommendation. But, yeah, if you have anything, just, just hop in here. So, first one, what is free cash flow yield? This is a very black and white question. It's pretty simple, and that's why what I start out with. So, for Sprouts Farmers Market, it's simple. It, it trades at, like, it, it's not like you're doing any analysis here, you just kind of look, all right, what's it trading at on a trailing basis? And it's around 10% for Sprouts Farmers Market. And then Spotify, it's a little different. I mean, it, it basically trades at a free cash flow yield of 0%. And define free cash flow yield for- Oh, right, 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 right. Know. If someone doesn't know, yeah, it's just the inverse of price to free cash flow. Yeah. So it's essentially saying the same thing of what Ryan was saying out of what multiple is it going to trade at. So if you're at a 20 times free cash flow, the yield is 5%. Yeah, that it's is. how much of their market cap do they generate in free cash every year? Each year, yeah. And I'm using the trailing basis here. And then if you trade it 10 times free cash flow, your free cash flow yield is 10%. Uh, and then Spotify is zero. So you, you know that kind of tells you something right away there. What are you going to have to assume if the free cash flow yield is currently at 0%? Uh, and then with a company with depressed free cash flow generation like Spotify, I really try to look at what free cash flow margins could be at scale based on the gross margins. I don't really know to go into this because, Ryan, you hit this pretty well, you know, but what matters is gross margins, invested capital requirements, working capital dynamics, what management is telling us. With Spotify, you know, they basically say what they're going to be, and it's pretty easy with that subscription model that it'll likely be around 10%, maybe higher, if some other parts of the business do well. What? But Sorry, free cash flow margin? Margin, yes, not the yield. So the margin, yeah. something around 10% for them. For each business, it's gonna be different. And for Sprouts Farmers Market, it's pretty easy to assume what it is because you're not 
making a bet or it's not likely the business is going to change that much and so over the next few years this kind of plays back into what i said where there's basically two different parts that could change the margin profile of a business so let's take like sprouts for example there's logistical efficiencies they could add distribution centers yeah. that might add a few basis points in but just a small margin amount. yeah right and then for Spotify, on the other hand, there could be that emerging part of the business, that Trojan horse, uh, let's say that's podcast, where it has totally different economics. If that starts to make up more and more of the business, the overall yep. economics change. And if a company is investing heavily through the operating expenses line or just standard through just a regular uh, capital expenditure, you know, the free cash flow margins might be more depressed. And that's kind of what entices us a lot with a growth stock or something that may be described as a growth stock is there are a ton of investors that'll just throw something aside if it's current like free cash flow yield is zero percent or negative but the reason i start with this question is because it always tells us what growth and free cash flow needs to be in order for the investment to work out so with sprouts farmers market at a current 10 percent free cash flow yield it is a low bar and then with spotify it is at a much higher bar so that comes into the next question. What can free cash flow per share grow at over the next three to five years? This is probably the most important question in the input, or sorry, into the valuation model. And it can sometimes have tons of input. And it's really the one financial metric that matters if you're a buy and hold investor over the long term. Some people might argue differently, but that's kind of how I look at the, look at the investment world. So back to the examples with Sprouts Farmers Market, it could be really simple. Store count can grow from what I'm assuming, at 10, 8 to 10% per year, and the company can buy back around 3% to 5% of its float, assuming minimal or no multiple expansion. Obviously, if you know the, the earnings multiple or free cash flow multiple expands a lot, yeah, you'll do fine with your investment, but they're not going to be able to increase free cash flow per share as much. It's also um, a little harder. If you're betting on multiple expansion, you're betting on investor sentiment, yes, which is a harder bet yes, to make. And it's really hard to predict. Uh, yeah, so very simple conservative analysis there that is just a bet on durability, but then it gets more complicated with a growth stock like Spotify since, and it's unique with every situation. So with them, you know, since it's a subscription business, I think it is highly durable and pretty moody. Like Ryan said, that's important with my analysis as well. I, and people might get, you know, like, oh, you can't really do that. I just, I really just back full free cash flow margin based on what I assume revenue can grow to and try to be very conservative. Again, I try to be conservative with the assumptions. So for example, if I think that the company can get to say 25 billion in revenue and at a 10% free cash flow margin, that is 2.5 billion in annual free cash flow. That is around 5.5% yield based on the current market cap. And then you can do similar analysis with that with all sorts of different numbers based on what you know revenue currently is for Spotify and stuff like that. The conclusion you'll come to is that it is expensive. And in that case, you need to be highly confident, in my opinion, of management, durability, and moat, and I guess growth potential as well. So it really tells you what needs to happen. Um, anything on that? Or Yeah. So why don't you talk about what goes into your assumption? Like how do you arrive at an assumption for the growth of free cash flow? Yeah. So outside of just what management is saying the business can grow at, kind of my assumptions of what share count and be and what financials can grow at, I really ask the question, how likely is it that my prediction of free cash flow per share growth is correct? So this is, this is a really, really hard question. And I don't think any, I don't have a formula for this. I don't think anyone has a formula for this. It really changes and it's very qualitative. And what I try to do is come up with just a range in my confidence in the business and then slap some percentages on that. So for Sprouts Farmers Market, as an example, I'm going to use these two companies again. I have less confidence in the business. I don't think the business is of high quality as Spotify uh, in growing free cash flow per share. So I'd say like, you know, you can't put an exact percentage on it, but my assuming that I'm thinking it can grow free cash flow per share at like 12% based on the two financial metrics that really matter, or sorry, store count and then free cash flow, uh, and then free cash flow margins and then stock buybacks. I think I'm like 45% to 60% confident in that, but then Spotify, I'm maybe more 60 to 80% confident in the quality of the business and what it can grow at. So this question, again, it's really qualitative, but it kind of tells me whether I need more of a margin of safety in the current free cash flow yield. For example, something like Sprouts Farmers Market is something where, you know, 
It's already trading at a 10% free cash flow yield. It's a lower bar to hop over to make it a good investment. Or if the margin of safety is in the quality of the business, uh, which is something like Spotify is. And that comes back to a lot. If you're really interested in a margin of safety with the quality of business, I'd check out Ensemble Capital stuff. They do really good stuff on kind of, it's hard to describe, but you know what I mean, right? And obviously there are businesses where it's easier to uh, say how likely it is. Like, you know, mm-hmm. Autodesk, for example, you can you can take a good guess that the prices, uh, they have such a differentiated product that they're going to be able to raise prices incrementally over time. So you can kind of be a little more confident in your assumptions, whereas obviously something that's susceptible to uh, consumer habits or something like that might be a little less likely. Yep. Right. Yep. And, and then that, wh- why, why is the per share part so important? Just oh, so okay, knows. okay. Okay. Yeah. Talk yes. about that and yeah. how it can change. Yeah. So, and I guess I just wrote a blog post on this, so it kind of made me inspired to, I guess, talk about this a lot is that really when you're an investor and I think a lot of people listening know this, but when you're an investor, you're buying shares in a company, it, really matters how much profits and cash they're generating per your share. And the two things, and there's a few other ways you can go about it, but the two things that will impact it positively are share buybacks, reducing the share count. So if you're steadily reducing the share count by like 3 4% a year, and the business is generating consistent free cash flow and it is growing at, say, 8% a year, you add that on to the compounding free cash flow and hopefully the intrinsic value of the business. Now, if you're diluting shares and giving out stock options, having to do a ton of common stock raises, stuff like that, that'll hurt you. And that is a share count headwind. And that can, the compounding of share growth, share count growth can work in the opposite direction. Does that make sense in describing it? Yeah. And I, I always try to think about it. Like imagine if you owned a business with two other people, right? You had it in thirds and that business generated a hundred dollars in cash that year, you'd get a third of it. Now what happened now? Think about it on either side of the spectrum there. If shares were bought back, or you bought shares. you buy back shares from someone else, or you add a fourth partner. Right, you're obviously not gonna get as much cash uh, in your hands. Mm -hmm. And and (laughs) that's the end of the game is, or uh, the theoretical end of the game is how much cash comes to you. Yep, exactly. And then another thing I ask is what downside there is in this investment at these prices. This is another difficult question, but it's very unique to each situation. So. This is where, and I think a lot of people should do this, write a pre-mortem on everything we own. It's the opposite of a post-mortem. It's like, all right, if things are going to go badly, what would happen? With Sprouts Farmers Market, and usually it's, you know, it's pretty simple for every business. It all comes down to, okay, comp sales are going to stagnate or decline. Um, it would lead to margin pressure, you know, all for that sprouts. stuff for Sprouts Farmers Market. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you kind of want to identify reasons why that would occur, and it's likely if, you know, Amazon uh, finally executes on its brick and mortar strategy, stuff like that. If really people come up with a better scale offering. And then with Spotify, you know, the downside would be stagnating user growth and podcast consumption. Very simple with that as well. However, while the current valuation with something like Spotify does imply a lot of downside if the business can't grow, again, with the current profit generation, the current uh, valuation based on what kind of gross profits they're generating. I actually think there is a ton of margin of safety due to how much value this asset would have to a lot of other businesses. Now, that's pretty debatable and it's very qualitative, but mm-hmm. you can kind of think about it. Okay, if the business is stagnating, if they're looking for a potential acquirer, there's people that would put a lot of value on getting whatever it is, three, four hundred million monthly active users of, the, of a music streaming service or an audio streaming service. And I think the big takeaway here from this question is the downside is unique and hard to predict for every investment, but you should try to at least think it out. So if bad things start happening, you aren't, you don't trick yourself into thinking, no, it's fine. And it's like, no, no, you wrote this down six months ago. Do not trick your future self into thinking everything's fine. When what you said that can happen is happening and the investment is going poorly, you know, then you might have to change your mind. Okay. And so what is sort of that terminal valuation? What do you look yeah, for? What, what is, uh, we all try to use evaluation at the end to kind of discount to what is yours? Yeah. So this is very, very similar to yours. Pretty, uh, black and white. It's fairly easy. You know, you, I, I, I like to put in a range though. Um, and if you have any public competitors, you can kind of put it out there. So with someone like Sprouts Farmers Market, I'd say 
versus you know other grocery competitors versus the quality of the biz- business versus the um, you know groceries pretty recurring in nature but it's not a subscription business I think it probably deserves to trade it you know 15 to 20 times free cash flow if they do what they say they're gonna do and then for Spotify in my book this might be a little you know some people might not agree with this but I think it deserves to trade at 25 to 30 times free cash flow uh, due to the low churn and the modiness of the business but I, I really this question isn't crucial but I think it helps me determine what multiple expansion or compression could look like if the investment is successful but it's not something I try to bank on having unless it's the compression part where you're like okay you're gonna face some valuation headwinds but that's okay it's just something you gotta expect it's gonna happen and you don't do a DCF I don't yet and like you I do I do not do an explicit DCF I think we are doing DCFs, but just very simple ones um, I know some people might be uh, either angry at that. Uh, it's just the way we like to do things. If it's bad, that's good for you because you'll do better than us. Um, but the reason I don't personally is that I know myself. I would get caught up in the spreadsheet. I'd anchor to those things just like Ryan said. And I guess to wrap things up, the one thing I've started to ask myself to prevent myself from getting to the, you know, quote, pie in the sty stuff where convincing myself that something trading at 30 or 40 times sales is okay um, I try to ask, can this business get to at least a 10% free cash flow yield on my cost basis, which is the price I'm paying for my investment? And how long will it take for the stock to get to a free cash flow yield of 10% if it doesn't already? Does that make sense? Assuming the price doesn't move. Let's Assuming, say. yeah. It's on, yeah. And the crucial thing here is on my cost basis. Right. Okay. So, and then with Sprouts Farmers Market, it already trades at about 10%. You could argue it might be a little lower depending on the day. Uh, but with Spotify, it's going to take a lot of years. So it kind of, it's another way of telling you, okay, how high of a bar is this investment hurdle? Or uh, did I totally botch that? How high of a bar do we have to jump over here? No, that makes sense. And then Spotify, like obviously something that's growing faster, uh, there is, so for Sprouts, it might be at 10% right now. It might not grow. That free cash flow yield isn't going to grow as fast as Spotify would even if it took longer. It better not. And if it does, then Sprouts is a, a pretty good opportunity. But yeah, that's that's what you're assuming. Yeah. Okay. Anything else? I don't think so. I hope we covered it. If you have any questions, find us on Twitter, DM us. We'd love to chat. If we got anything wrong, um, we always love to approve our analysis. This isn't something like, this isn't the Ten Commandments or anything. You know, no. like we we don't we know this is a sensitive topic for a lot of investors. So, all right, we're gonna hit a quick break and then we're gonna get to our regular show notes. Cox Panoramic Wi-Fi includes advanced security to help protect all your connected devices. You'll get real-time alerts. Oh, like this one, so you don't have to worry about malware or when your kid downloads a song from a shady link. And now all your computer can play is Red color, red color, where are you? <sighs> all blocked, thanks to advanced security, included with Cox Panoramic Wi-Fi. Advanced security must be enabled in the Panoramic Wi-Fi app. Restrictions apply. Welcome back in. I'm kicking things off with my story. Uh, so AMC was in the news for a lot of reasons last took, week. Took all the headlines last week. Very annoying and boring, to be honest. But. One that I didn't mention here was amc uh ceo adam aaron on the video call mm. without pants on the, em- the emperor was wearing yeah. no clothes literally yes well pants. there's a theory he did it on purpose to make himself part of the common you know the narrative is he's one of the people you know I, he could have done that on purpose who knows though um so for anyone that hasn't kept up with it uh last monday i think might have been tuesday but amc shares skyrocketed they were up 100 percent in a day um the stock is up more than 1400 percent this year to put it in perspective it's kind of become a meme stock which once again for anyone who doesn't know it's basically there's a lot of people on social media saying like trying to pick like like it's a battle like we gotta get the angry shorts yeah high short interest not a big market cap um we can move it together move it together with stock options stuff like that yeah yeah and so uh the amc afterwards uh it might have been i forget the timing of it but they announced that shareholders will be getting free popcorn if they visited an amc theater this summer or cinema um so shareholder incentive program right there. I don't. This might be the first of its kind. I've never seen something like is this. It, yeah, I mean, uh, 
Are we going to tax that? It's a, it's, a, it's basically a dividend. It's a popcorn dividend. Is that going to be taxed? Yeah. <laughs> the IRS might be going through some really annoying uh, paperwork this uh, this next year. Yeah, and the stock was uh, anyway after the hundred percent day, the stock was it looked like going to continue its ascent, but because uh, it was trading up like forty percent or something like that in pre market, and then AMC filed with regulators to sell more than 11 million shares in this filing they warned investors by saying our current market prices reflect market and trading dynamics unrelated to our underlying business Uh, you don't say and uh this was their seventh equity offering in nine months adam aaron the ceo then tweeted i think today the financial press has banner headlines about how innovative AMC and I, and I are in reaching out to our individual investors. Odd that they praise something so obvious. CEOs and professional management teams should listen to shareholders. You own our company. We listen to you. Uh, now, in 2020, Adam Aaron was awarded a $5 million special incentive bonus in light of extreme challenges faced. Uh, thanks, Postmarket, for letting yeah. us see that. Um, so he really is a man of the people, as you can see. Technically, none of this is illegal, but should this type of behavior be what, illegal? What, what behavior are you describing? Uh, stealing, stealing, I suppose. Well, what's stealing? Leveraging, uh, leveraging retail investors to yeah. take their money. I guess egging on investors, yeah, that's, that's a fine line. But the Giving way- popcorn, giving, <laughs> giving free gifts. That's, yeah, I don't know about the- And then selling shares. No, I mean there should have to be like maybe um maybe there already is, but there should be like a filing. You have to wait in a certain amount of time for equity offerings. Gosh, I don't know. It's a fine. It's a tough line. AMC's definitely been smart about the share offerings. It's really saved them. You could argue a lot of the companies that people have loved over the past year that are trading at, you know, 30, 40, 50 times sales should have been just as aggressive with share offerings. I know some of them have. So I don't, that part's obviously fine, but yeah, some of the little details of the popcorn, the egging on shareholders to like, you know, you're part of this movement now feels disingenuous. I mean, I don't think you can make it illegal though. I, I I don't think we're ever investing in AMC, but I don't think we were anyway, so nah, it doesn't affect us, but it's a story, and to be honest, it really ruins the financial news of the day, because it's such a boring topic, and it's really not fun to talk about. But It really ruins AMC theaters for me, to be <laughs> Yeah, it's going to ruin them forever. It, that is true. Um I won't be able to go and not think about Wall Street bets. All right. What's your story? Okay. This is a fun one too, I guess. Pershing Square Tontine is merging with Universal Music Group. So Bill Ackman's Pershing Square Tontine Holdings is taking, and it's a SPAC, uh, very unique SPAC, huge one that he raised last year, is taking Universal Music Group public. They are buying it from Vivendi, which owns UMG right now. And the deal helps Vivendi, which is going to have a huge tax bill for its shareholders if it's spun out UMG not take this bill by having PC uh, by having Pershing Square take some of this off their hands. So pretty smart there. Uh, values UMG at around 21 times EBITDA. Uh, and I guess we should describe what UMG is. They're the biggest and fastest growing music label in the world. Essentially, they are riding the tailwind of music streaming and other online royalties like TikTok, generating very consistent cash flow. It is an insanely complicated transaction. I've heard a lot of people describe this transaction as the most complicated thing in finance they've possibly ever seen. Um, I'm not going to be able to cover all the points in the show. It would be a ton of numbers, and there's like 15 different things that investors need to know. But we can link to some good stuff that people have uh, written about. And if you're into SPAC arbitrage and stuff like that with all these warrants and the options and all the second SPACs that Pershing Square is doing, there can be some interesting opportunities there if you're that type of investor. Uh, but the only question I have is any interest in UMG once it goes post all this uh, spec, you know, nonsense, I guess. Not really. Um, I don't know. It's, it's kind of like get, there's some give and take because there has been uh, a rise of individual artists. But at the same time, they are benefiting from the world of streaming. And yeah. that's clear. Um, so it's just like where do you see the world heading? 
I personally am not a huge fan of labels, but that's me as a biased Spotify shareholder. Yeah, we're pretty biased as the as the Spotify shareholder here. I mean, they they've had pretty bad tactics in the past. Uh, they're not bad, but aggressive and possibly one might say immoral tactics in the past. Um, some might even describe it as collusion against a lot of the streaming services. But I mean, it's a damn consistent business. It's just yeah. kind of. If you're looking at something that's going to generate cash at a steady rate, I mean, I don't think you can look farther here. But it's not its not a Chamath spec. I'll, I'll say that. People may have been disappointed in that. My question is, what is the world – does the world look better or worse without it? I don't know. That's a tough If these question. are individual artists. Obviously, uh, they might not have as much success, maybe have, wouldn't have been promoted. But I, I'm of the belief that they're sort of a middleman that – and I'm not an artist, so I might be missing something. But they're a middleman that I don't think is that necessary. Yeah, but it or, was you. It used to be. Yeah, or they're getting a lot of the supply chain, or sorry, the margin. If for every dollar, they're getting a lot of it more than they technically should deserve. I mean, I guess that's a good point. But there's also the back catalogs. Those are the lucrative ones, like the whatever. I don't know if UMG owns it, but like the Beatles or stuff like that. They're just sitting on. Yeah, they're just sitting on. Very durable, less payouts. Basically, all going to them. Stuff like that. Yeah. All right, man. What about you? slightly interested but not really it seems like there's a few things holding it up I don't know if this is a compounder I mean if you're looking for I mean, a typical investment that feels safe-ish I mean there's some left tail risk with you know if the streaming services or the artists get too fed up with them it seems like that's unlikely uh, I'm not sure It it's definitely in the circle of competence though um, yeah it's something I think I can understand at the right price. I'd be interested, but yeah, there is sort of terminal risk. Maybe, and there could. Man, I might be wrong. Yeah. All right. Uh, my next story is not super crazy. It's not it's that relevant. It's good. It's, it's just kind of funny uh, or interesting, I guess. This morning, it was announced that I believe via Jeff Bezos's Instagram, which which I did not expect him to be active uh, on Instagram, but he is. Uh, this morning, it was announced that he will be flying to space on the first crewed flight of the new Shepard, which was built by Blue Origin. His space company, I think, was founded in, was it 2000? 2000, 2001, yeah, something like that. Um, he'll be flying on July 20th. That's 15 days after he's set to resign as the CEO from Amazon. He's bringing his brother along and some random winner of an auction, I think. Uh, cool for that guy. That's quite the crew to go up with, I guess. Do you think this now that we know this information is this the main reason he resigned as ceo because you could not have a ceo of one of the big tech companies doing this yeah that's true it's a bit of a flex honestly if this is he he's like this has been my passion since i was a kid uh i've always yeah, wanted to do this it almost feels like oh i built one of the most valuable companies in the world just to fulfill my dream and now he's like, literally going to the moon he's like man all right <laughs> he actually said in Amazon Unbound to, or no, Amazon Unbound, which is the sequel to the other Amazon um, biography, I guess you kind of call it the business biography. He said in the early days that we're taking Amazon to the moon. So he was the original Wall Street bet meme investor <laughs> is Jeff Bezos. But continue. Sorry. Yeah, Blue Origin has been notoriously secretive about their test flights as well. So I think this kind of came as a shock considering that he will – Bezos is kind of the first of that billionaire bunch to actually be going to space. Um, everyone, I think, thought it was going to be Elon. Branson's kind of been all over uh, the place. No, nah, him and Chamath are they're <laughs> lock. They're solid. They're managing liquidity. They got stuff. To, they're you know they're managing liquidity. According to NPR, the flight is expected to last a whopping eleven minutes, uh, and space is defined as the area past the Carmen line, which is sixty-two miles above sea level. Which is they're expected yeah. to fly above that for. A few moments. As opposed to the Klarman line, which would be 62 <laughs> percentage points below book value. No, that's a terrible joke. Sorry, <laughs> they continue. Uh, this is also a reusable rocket. So, I mean, things are looking great for old Jeff here. He's in good shape, it looks like. It is, yeah. They, they, Had to be. Yeah, you, you ought to be as you get on these flights, I guess. Real sentimental Instagram post, by the way. There we go, yeah. Definitely not manufactured for a narrative. It's good. It's all good. No, I mean, if I have three takeaways I have from here. One, this is the best midlife crisis anyone I was about has to say ever that. had. Everyone, we've all, that's been a big thing everyone's been talking about, I guess. Best midlife crisis 
Two, the guy has not watched Billions. Yeah. I'm not going to bring that up, but there's some unfortunate things that go on in that show. And then three, I'm not saying it, but there's a lot of people that have been talking about Amazon put options. I, I would not go there. But there's some people, and if I was an anonymous account, I maybe talking about that. But I don't I, know. Do you think he has that much influence still? It's almost like uh, I describe it as Warren Buffett, you, you know, think? passing on, and then someone buying put options on Berkshire. Yeah, I mean, the stock would probably tank. I don't know. No, I'm saying, do you think Bezos has that much influence on Amazon anymore? Like, do you, on day to day operations? Uh, no. Not really. Know. Don't you think it's fine in Andy Jassy's hands? Oh, yeah, yeah. For sure. I'm just telling you, the reaction would be pretty bad. Yeah. I, I, hope, I mean, I'm not voting for that. I would never do that. That's almost like the, uh, I don't think anyone actually did this, but that's like, you know, with the World Trade Center stuff, that, on 9-11. That would be some trades that would make you feel... Horrible. Horrible. Guilty. Inside. Something yeah. you never want to root for. All right. Uh... Yeah, there wasn't really any big investment takeaways from there. So, uh, <laughs> what's your next story? It, yeah, the investment in Blue Origin that'd be a very risky one. That is that'd be one of the riskiest ones. I guess you can invest I in think space Galactic. flight in general. So risky, insanely risky. Uh, but go ahead, buy it. Whatever, eighty hundred. Uh, they don't do any revenue. Yeah. Um, all right. Theoretical I guess, revenue. Yeah, I got a fun one. I've been reading Cable Cowboy. Uh, started, you know, one of the most popular business books. Chronicles the rise of TCI, which is the biggest cable company in the 80s and 90s, and kind of looks at it through a biography of sorts of John Malone. If you're older, you probably know John Malone, but if you're younger, you might not know him. Some big takeaways from the book, which is a really good read, great storytelling, good narrative. One, Malone hates taxes and loves complicated deals. I think, can, stocks. I think you can tell from Liberty Media. He loves that. He the more complicated, the better, to be honest. He loves the complication because basically he can trick other executives into doing stuff that benefits him, uh, which is fine. I mean, all, all rights to him. The, the executives just don't know what they're doing. Uh, nobody in their right mind would have invested in TCI in 1972, which is when Malone took over. It had $19.2 million in revenue and $132 million in debt, which it's it was destined for bankruptcy. The only reason it succeeded was because of really strong managerial talent and a lot of luck like they said this in the book um i mean you can't i mean betting on that is just it's just insane uh they also had the origin story of liberty media which is getting complicated but interesting and then some stats on how well the stock did uh from 1974 to 1997 tci went up 5578 times or that's like a hunter bagger, what, 55 times over, the best performing stock on the market during that time period, and then they sold to AT&T. So, AT&T. Oh, they, yeah, I mean, good. you can read the book. There's a lot of details. They definitely, TCI got the better end of the deal, but I'll, um, I'll give out an anecdote, I guess. So after selling to AT&T in 1998, Malone had less control over TCI, but he still getting fed up with the board on AT&T and kind of seeing how dumb the executives were acting. So the head of AT&T Cable offered to sell 1.2 million cable subs in Montana for $3 billion to take out some of AT&T's $62 billion in debt. I guess things were the same at AT&T, you know, got an awful of the debt. It's always been terrible. And what was worse was the sale was going to be taxed, which probably drew the line from Malone because he's like, no, no, we can do this and not uh, not pay taxes at all. Um, here's a quote. So certainly if you can't, I think he's telling this um, to the CEO of AT&T. Quote, certainly if you can't sell them to anybody else, sell them to Liberty. We can buy them tax-free and I will pay you $50 million more than the after-tax proceeds of this deal, whatever it is. And at the time, you know, he was running Liberty Media. And then so the board, he says, and this is really, really funny. He said, I am not doing this because I want to go into the cable business. I'm doing this because I think it is the most stupid uh, freaking thing. He used the explicit there. What are the headlines going to say? Buy them for 5000 a sub and then sell them for 1700 a sub and make it up in volume? He is the worst dealer that I've ever seen in my life. You guys are nuts. There are a bunch of exclamation points here. You are actually going to take your leverage up by selling these assets. So as you can see, he was the cable cowboy, 
<laughs> and he was not afraid to speak his mind and tell AT&T when they were acting very, very stupidly. Um, I haven't finished the book, and I know there's some ways it ends there. Um, is there a more one-sided relationship than Malone and AT&T? It's like an undefeated record, especially given what just went on recently with Discovery. No, I think AT&T, they're like the picturesque for punching bag for bureaucrat him. bloat oh yes yes <laughs> he just goes do we guys need, do we need to offload some debt raise a little money sell some stuff well we sell some stuff to AT&T guys we just keep selling stuff to AT&T it's all good it's yeah uh, they have such a <laughs> their acquisitions are great yeah if you yeah and I mean and then they acquired Time Warner Cable recently they've acquired all these assets tough history for them but that book is really good don't really have anything else to say. You want to go to your next story? Yeah, last story for me. This week, uh, U.S. regulators approved a drug called aducanumab. Sorry. Tough name. I'm Tough name. messing that one up. But it promises to slow the progression of Alzheimer's. Um, so as you know, uh, Brett and I suck with biotech. Don't really understand it at all. Uh, but the company producing the drug is Biogen, and the stock was up 60% this morning alone. This also gives the green light to several competitors who stalled these projects previously. Um, apparently, this was uh, the FDA had not approved this at first, and now they have, and so them not approving it gave a bunch of okay. a bunch of other companies stalled their projects on it. Um, so competition is expected to come. Does this? It's so. I just feel like biotech investing is so lumpy and unpredictable. It makes stories like this where it's up 60% in the morning, but, and some people are saying like there's going to be $10 billion of revenue recognized over the next 10 years from this. But then over the next year, all. competitors could all come out with uh, a competing product yeah. and take most of those sales. Like, yeah, doesn't it just tough. make you want to stray away? Yeah. Or if you're going to go into biotech, I mean, be careful and probably take a basket approach. That seems the logical I move. I talked to someone that knows more about the industry, but yeah, it's tough. I'll say someone probably made a lot of money on call options this morning, so that's good for them. Someone definitely got rich. Probably an insider somewhere. <laughs> somewhere, yeah. I mean, nowadays the with the SEC not doing much. <laughs> yeah. Uh, someone on Reddit probably. All right, what's uh, what's your next story? Okay, then we're going to wrap up with some fun ones. Uh, the Bitcoin conference, I don't – if you're not – Aware you may or may not pay attention to this stuff, but this was comedy gold. Yeah, I mean, we got to end with the Bitcoin conference. Well, people may be calling Bretton Woods too. No, no one's calling it that, but uh, they they may be joking. Uh, I'll give out my favorite parts. One, the insane energy guy coming out on the stage, feeling like he's all drugged up, saying yelling like we're never selling and then uh what was it f elon f elon which i'm okay with but (laughs) i think his name is max kaiser if you want to follow his stuff he is energetic and then the same guy uh kaiser tearing up dollar bills in a cnbc interview ten dollar bills ten dollar bills huge yeah not one dollar bill so he's huge yeah if he's looking to offload all his fiat i'm your guy uh, and then he also claimed in the interview that he can own the Congress people with the Bitcoin, which is quite interesting. There's also, I mean, yeah, I hate to hate on him. Well, I really don't. But uh, he tweeted earlier today that he just bought a house in El Salvador because the El Salvador president made Bitcoin the illegal tender. I think he's a dictator, to be honest. I don't know. I'm pretty but, sure El Salvador has one of the highest murder rates in the world. Is it, yeah, it's a tough country. Tough, tough place. But... Uh, he tweeted that he just bought a house in El Salvador, but someone found the picture and it was actually a house in Costa Rica. So, spoiler alert, it might be embellishing the truth on some of this stuff. Uh, but the more homely part, or the more, I guess, just pure fun, was the Dogecoin shirt reveal. That was just an amazing 10 seconds. Yeah. When the guy runs up on stage, chairs off his suit, and then has the Doge shirt, he's slapping his chest. I know. You guys got to watch the videos of this because it's hard to describe how funny it is. The problem was it was – they were trying to take it very serious and they themselves <laughs> found out that it's not a very serious group. And I've never seen anything more cult-like. And I, I'm willing to bet most people that own Bitcoin were discouraged watching this. Um, yeah. The guy I, that started crying on stage – 
I didn't see that. No. There was one guy that was crying. It's like I'm never selling, man. <laughs> it's. I mean, it's, it's a, I mean, there's. It's a cult. Oh yeah, it's a cult. Imagine if we had a cult, fiat though. conference and people were like, "Never, I'm never selling this." I would dollar. go to a fiat conference if it was mainly to just be sarcastic. Isn't that a problem it. if you're never selling it? You know, for spending it. E- I mean, yeah, there's a lot of problems. I don't know. I think Tether could be one of the. I mean, Tether's a Tether's a potential buried nuclear bomb. You know what I mean? That someone discovers after World War II. Uh, I have no idea what's going to happen with Tether, but that stuff just it seems interesting. What What was your favorite moment? I have to go with the tearing up the dollar bills interview. I mean, that was just all timer. Don't do, I was saying, don't do drugs, guys, because that, that'll lead you to act like that. Yeah, I think the funniest part about the tearing up the dollar bills is that he chose a 10. Yeah. And that, like, like that was supposed to mean something over tearing up a 1. But it's like, at the same time, I think he was a little scared to tear up, like, something of more value. It's also illegal. Uh, Technically, it's illegal. Brady's nodding. It's, it's But illegal. he owns Congress people, so it doesn't yeah. matter. <laughs> Dude. I followed this guy. He's a great follow. I mean, <laughs> he, he, it's funny stuff. I mean, good for them, though. They, they bought Bitcoin at a dollar. These are going to be our rulers if Bitcoin goes to a million dollars. And I'm not happy about it. It's not going to be fun if they if they take over the world. All right. Well, uh, I think that's going to do it. Thank yeah. you, everyone, for listening. Hopefully, you got some value out of this show. But Hopefully, uh, we get some good interviews soon. We'll, we'll, yeah, we'll keep trying. We'll keep trying. Yep. Uh, we are general partners at Arch Capital, so uh, us or investors may have positions in the securities discussed on this podcast. Uh, we are not financial advisors. Anything we say or discuss on this podcast is not formal advice or recommendation. Thank you guys for listening. We'll see you next time.